0: Let's thank them for doing that today. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Psalm 63. And uh, just as you're going there, uh, I'll update you on what's happening for a series. Uh, in the fall, I'm going to introduce you to one of the most controversial books of the Bible wrote all of the church history. We're going to be looking at the book of Esther. It's going to be fun. I'm excited for what God is going to show us and teach us through that. But before that, we're just going to do a couple more weeks in the book of Psalms. We'll uh, look at Psalm 63 today, and we'll look at Psalms 27 uh, next week, and that one will deal with fear. So I'm excited for that. Uh, Let me read to you from the Word of God, Psalms 63, and you can follow along, this is Psalm 63 in the ESV version, it goes like this. O God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul, my soul thirsts for you, my my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember upon you my bed and meditate upon, upon you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you; you are at my your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my, who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be uh, a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the reading of God's word this morning. Would you pray, Father? Thank you for today. And I pray that as we look through the psalms, you would help uh, show us where in our life this psalm applies and where it can convict us this morning. Help me to preach it clearly and accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to help some of you who might be feeling like you're going through a time of barrenness in your relationship with Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is, is I want you to experience the real thing. I want you not to just come to church and go through the motions of church and believe the right things. I want you to know Jesus, to have a personal relationship with him, to faint for him, to want him. And yet sometimes I know that it can feel like our relationship with Jesus is a little bit dry, a little bit barren. So this morning, I want to give for you a, a really practical message on four changes that you can make in your life so that you can have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. I want you to be able to echo the first two verses. You want to hit the slide for me there. Of Psalms, uh, Psalms 1, or Psalm 63, I want you to be able to say and echo and when you hear these words, God, you're my God. Earnestly, uh, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a in dry and weary land. You, you know what that means. You can echo that. You can understand that. Your heart rejoices in that and, and, and connects to that in some way. We can see right away that when he was saying this, he was not talking about literal food or water or comfort or rest. He indeed wanted communion with, this, with the Lord. What you're reading in the first couple of verses, it's this desire for a fresh, day-by-day, vibrant relationship with the Lord. And my question to you this morning is, do you remember when you got it? You know what I mean by that? Do you remember when you got it? Like do you remember that time in your life that that the moment when you just when you said you just didn't believe in Jesus but you actually love Jesus? Do you remember the moment when you said I get it? Like I'm in love with him. I love him with all my heart and my soul and my mind like you could say that verse that i've just quoted and mean it, got him i'm 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 thirsty for you i'm my 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 flesh it, it faints for you but you feel like right now you're kind of living in a dry and weary land where there is no water it feels like your relationship with jesus is sort of flatlined it's not bad but it's not good either you're not in the valleys you're not in this emergency but you're not experiencing the mountaintops you're living in Manitoba spiritually. You're coasting. Small group lessons don't feel right. They're not hitting the mark. You feel like the sermon is dry. The worship isn't hitting right. When you pray, it's, it's, it's like you're just talking to the air. You're not, it doesn't feel like God is speaking to you or you're having a great time with the Lord. It's just dry, which is ironic because David was in a desert when he wrote this song. Okay? If you look at the superscript, that little bit of information right before verse one, it says this: "A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah." So he is actually when he is in this song, he when he's writing this song, he is literally in the desert. Most likely, although we are not sure for positive, but he's probably running from Saul. If you know the familiar with David's story, and David found himself in a situation where he was alone, removed, obscure, and separated from every comfort and friend, and he acutely feeling the effects of his thirst, his hunger, his pain, and his loneliness. The phrase, the dry and weary land, is a vivid picture of his surroundings in the Judean wilderness. And it is also his way of uh, <clears throat> likening or giving us a metaphor for what he feels like his relationship with God is like. I don't know a lot about deserts, but the one thing I do know is that deserts can kill you. Because it's a dry and so harsh environment. A physical desert is a place where there isn't not a lot of resources. There isn't a lot of life. There isn't a lot of water that can be either really cold or really hot. And And a desert can actually, if you let it, if you're not careful enough, and if you don't adapt to it correctly, the environment can kill you. And that is a great illustration for those dry seasons in our our relationship with the Lord. Feels like a real desert. Feels like you're just going through a time that feels barren and lifeless. Do you know how we tend to respond to barrenness in our relationship with the Lord? Take a guess. We fill it with activity. When we feel like a relationship with God is lifeless and barren, we tend to fill it with more activity, hoping to replicate the right kind of conditions and the right kind of environment that make us feel close to God, the right songs, the right mood, the right kind of way to do our devotional life. Or we fill it with more potlucks, more social activity, more prayer nights, which are not all bad, Dallas might argue about the potluck thing but it just doesn't feed the soul in the same way. And what winds up happening is in those dry moments, we fill it with all activity, and our relationship with God goes from a relationship to a ritual religion. So many Christians know little of a vital, fresh, day-by-day relationship with God. Notice how I didn't say it was inactive. Christians, especially here in North America, have never been more busy or more active, especially in church, than they are these days. The tyranny of the urgent is no theoretical problem. Many believers jump off the Sunday treadmill of activities only to hop on to the weekly treadmill meetings of meetings, appointments, functions, rehearsals, clubs, engagements, banquets, studies, committees, and retreat. And I would heartily agree with the one that said, much of our religious activity is nothing more than a cheap anesthetic to deaden the empty pain and barrenness that we feel. And you know what? I've been guilty of that as a pastor. I hope not here, but I remember years ago, I... I decided that I would take my youth group to a youth convention, one of those, you know, rah-rah, you know, live for Jesus kind of ones, and I was doing it because I wanted my youth to know what it was like to really fall in love with Jesus. I wanted them not not to make Jesus a part of their life, but their whole life. I wanted them to get lost in Jesus, to get carried away, to repent, to give their lives to him, all that sort of thing. And so I took them to this youth conference. The only problem was is that this youth conference happened to fall on a particular day where everyone in the church and their families were busy. The parents were busy. The kids themselves were busy with all the extra church-related activities, sports, family functions that happened right around the Christmas season. You know how that is. And so I made a pact that I would get the kids home on time. And uh, the event said that it would end at 5 o'clock, I knew it would take an hour to get back through traffic, and so I told the parents, hey, you know what, we'll be back at 6 o'clock. The event went on, and, the, and, and it was a great time, and the speaker came up, but the speaker didn't come up till about 4.30. And the pastor in me goes, okay, this is going to go longer than 5 o'clock at this point, right? So I let him speak and he did a great job. the Holy Spirit did a great job of convicting the kids of their sin. and uh, at the end of it, at 4:50, he decides that he's going to do an altar call. And I don't know if you've been in a youth or altar call. my kids never did altar calls. They never whenever we did them in the church, was, it was always a poor response. There were about a thousand kids there and he said he calls to the altar call and I brought 60 kids and about 40, I saw this out of the corner of my eye in the back. All 40 kids, or 40 of my kids, were the first to go to the front of the altar call. And it should have been a great time where I was like, this is amazing, kids are repenting, they give their lives to God. You know what the first thought was in my head? I'm going to get in trouble. right? And I was faced with a decision about what to do. Do I pull the kids out, or do I take the heat from the parents for, for, for being late? And you know what I decided to do? I got all the youth leaders together and I told them to barge their way to the front of that that altar call and get the kids back. That was a dear bad mistake because what I had done in that moment was I youth group in that moment became an activity, just something to do, something to check off the list. It became something to do in a dry, it was a dry and weary land moment. I took the water away. A place where youth were longing to be satisfied for Jesus, but in that environment, I left them wanting. And Here, God was clearly working in the lives of the young people, and I was too busy running a program and too busy to have an activity uh, to see that Jesus was moving. I could have done something else. I could have got a youth leader go ahead and say, Could you just give us half an hour? Your kids are having a moment with God here's what I want to say about this and I want you to hear very clearly and I hope you can echo this is I don't want to be one of these kind of people that has to have be in this amazing place and have the, everything has to be in the right kind of condition in order for me to think about the cross of Jesus Christ I want to be the kind of person who every day of my life I am just struck by the love of Jesus I want to get carried away by him. I don't care where how deep. Like every day I want to be the kind of person that I can think about the cross at some point during the day, even if I'm doing something mundane and just be struck by it. I want to be one of those guys that's sitting in traffic and suddenly think about Jesus and what he did for me on the cross and be broken right there. I want to be standing in the marketplace and think about the blood of Jesus and and go in my heart, okay, this is the greatest thing in my life. And there's no one who's ever loved me like before. And I hope that's the, the cry of your heart too. I really hope that's why you're at church. I want you to know Jesus. I just don't want to do church because it's, it's something that you always do on Sunday. A routine. You want to know the cool thing about deserts? <coughs> Life can actually thrive in the desert. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I hope I get this right. But the Sonoran Desert is is, uh, one of North America's largest deserts. And it is home to over 60 species of animals and more than 350 species of birds, 20 amphibians, and some reptiles, and about 30 species of native fish. And what I want to say is like in that moment in a physical desert, life has learned not only to exist but to thrive. And I want to say that that is true in those dry seasons of life. Just like a a real dry and weary land. You can have a vibrant and growing faith in seasons of your life that feel lifeless and barren. The truth of the matter is, is I would say to you that when we experience desert times in our relationship with the Lord, those dry moments where we just don't, when it's neither good or bad, and we just feel like we're coasting, a lot of us try to get out of the desert. But I want to say to you is that the desert experience, those times where you feel it's, it's barren, it's lifeless, and so you're not getting out of it, if you lean in correctly, it can be one of the most um, intimate and close and, and growing times in your relationship with Jesus if you let it. And that's what I think Psalm 63 is really getting at it this morning with us. Is Psalm 63 is a song that David wrote about what it means to have a desperate longing for God. And what it means to be solely satisfied with in, in, in Him. It's this idea that I'm in this environment where I really want to be close to God. I really want to thirst for him. God, I want, to have be, I want everything that I do to follow you. I, I want it, but the environment that I'm in, the situation that I'm in right now, it's leaving me dry. It's not satisfying me in, in my thirst for you. It's not filling my satisfaction. And Psalm 63 comes along and says, Listen, uh, I know and can feel what it means to have that experience that." To have that longing for God, and it can be satisfied in God, and God alone, not the environment. Is that what Psalm 63 is saying to us, and if I could sum it up in in one sentence or two, is that in those moments where you feel dry, barren, and lifeless, God himself can be the one that quenches your thirst. And I see four ways that it happens in this text. The first comes in uh, in verse two. It says this: "So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory." I have to credit Chuck Swindoll for this observation in his commentary on the Psalms. He pointed something out that I would have never collected on my own. He said that he says this in the Old Testament. The sanctuary is a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. You see, by that time, Jesus had not come. And we all know that when you come in a flight pace of your relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. His presence is right here. But before that, if you wanted to experience the presence of God and being close to Him, you would go to the temple. Right? The problem is, is, He's not there, is He? He's not in the temple. So, this verse actually doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He's nowhere near the sanctuary. David couldn't go to the tabernacle to see the Lord's in the sanctuary. So, what he does is he actually uses his imagination. He's in a desert place, and he spends some time in the wilderness framing a mental picture of the Lord in the power of his glory in his heavenly throne. He takes the scriptures that he knows regarding the Lord and allows them to sketch, if you will, a mental image of him in the temple. In other words, he sets his mind and occupies himself with the Lord. And I would say that this is a great way to remove the wearisome uh, ritual of religion is to actually use our minds to think about and dwell on the Lord. The imagination should not be feared in the church. It can be a powerful instrument, both for good and evil purposes. The mind can be an instrument of pride, lust, hatred, or jealousy. And we can create in our minds vivid pictures which can lead us to terrible sins. This is precisely the case of committing adultery in the heart that we see our Savior mentioned in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. But I also want to say to you that the mind can also become an amazing means of communion with God. David spent lonely moments in the wilderness picturing himself back in the sanctuary, seeing the power and glory of God. And I think this is extremely practical in our prayer life. Because often, I don't know about what happens to you, we can get into the same sort of routine in our prayers where we, where we come and we pray and it becomes meaningless. Uh, whether it's before me- meals or maybe in the morning devotional time. And you just kind of like sink into this prayer mode without even thinking about what you're saying or doing and it just feels dry. How many of you had said grace just to get it over with and not really think about who you're approaching? I had a friend that talked about this, and he mentioned this. Uh, he mentioned what he, how he approached prayer like this, and this is what he said. I remember when I first studied Revelation chapter 4. That's John's description of God and what it was like in the heaven. And he talks about how he saw this being sitting on the throne, but he didn't look like a normal flesh and blood person. He, he had diamonds and rubies, he's glowing, and there's lightning, and there's fire, and there's thunder. And there's a hundred million angels in which they are all worshiping the God. It was such a massive picture of what God is like. I want you to consider what the, first words of, what the first words would come out of your mouth if you saw God like that. In all of his glory, what would you say? What would be the first thing that you say? And whatever those words are, that should be how you approach prayer. Because that's what we're doing when we're praying. We're coming before God and we're speaking to him. And we're, and that, so when you go around grace, just take a 15 seconds to think about what the Bible says about who God is and, when, and being in his presence like that, and then you pray. It can change your whole prayer life. Second of all, he quenched his thirst for God with praise. Verses 3 to 5, it says this. When I remember you on my bed... Oh, sorry, that's that's ahead. That's because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food, and my, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Friends, if you're feeling like your relationship with God is dry, can I just encourage you to praise Because praising in moments where you feel dry is actually very hard. You don't feel like it. You actually might be feeling like you're faking. There's nothing mystical or mysterious about praising God. Verses 3 and 5 tell us that praise is something that we do with our own lips, not merely our minds. We speak something out loud so others can hear words of affirmation concerning the Lord. And it's just as important that, that we that we hear those words too. Verse 4 says, I will do it as long as I live. So this isn't a once a week matter. You don't come to church and only have your quota of praise be filled by the songs that we sing in church. It's got to happen routinely throughout the week. More however, when God's loving kindness prompts David to sing his praise, notice that it satisfies his soul, according to verse 5. Praise is a deeply significant aspect of personal worship. So here's a challenge for you. If you're feeling like your relationship with God is dry, why don't you try this? Instead of, quote-unquote, counting your blessings like you should, why don't you create a list of affirmations concerning God? Place the words, take an 8 by half and 11 sheet, and just at the top of it write, I appreciate God for, dot, dot, dot. And then start writing in what those things. And every day, maybe just take five minutes in your devos and try to come up with one or two things that you appreciate God for and just keep a running list throughout the week of everything that you appreciate and say, thank you, God, for. Thirdly, if you find yourself in a dry and weary land, I would encourage you to meditate verse 4 verse 6 says this when i remember upon your bed when when i remember you upon your bed i meditate on you in the watches of the night now i know that the word meditation all oh, the alarm bells start going up in your heart right like what is pastor dan going to say is he going to start doing some sort of new age hocus pocus kind of thing right is, is that where this is going and the truth of the matter is no i'm not Meditation, godly meditation, is very, very different from the world's meditation. In the world today, meditation is very, very different. It kind of means that you are in this position where you kind of empty yourself of all thought and just kind of like quote-unquote be. And that's not the kind of meditation that the Bible is talking about. The Hebrew term rendered meditate means to Utter to ponder to devise or to plot. It's it's the word picture is actually if you really want a word picture, it's it's not of some new age Buddhist person with his legs crossed going um. It's kind of like a cow in the middle of the field chewing the chewing. He's chewing on what he's learning. So when the Bible talks about meditating, it's actually talking about the idea of thinking on and processing God's word. This kind of meditation involves a conscious considering of the information gathered day, during the day. David remembers God and then puts all the data together for greater understanding of God and according to his ways. According to Psalms 49, verse 3, it says, the mouse speaks wisdom, but the heart meditates upon God's word and then comes to an understanding. I find it noteworthy that in the sixth verse, David refers to the meditating during the night watches and being on his bed as he meditates. This suggests that one of the best times to ponder God's word and allow the scripture to dwell in your heart is when you retire for the night. That's the time that David has said that he remembered the Lord. Restful, fretful nights are all calmed by dwelling on Scripture. Tonight, before sliding between the sheets, I I, I would encourage you to devote 10-15 minutes to pondering the answer to this question, what did God teach you today? And you're going to find that that is a very, very hard thing to do. But I would encourage you to do it. Lastly, and I'll close with this, David Sing for joy in moments where you are dry and you feel that the land is weary. You want to focus on Jesus and let Jesus be the one that fills you up. I would encourage you to sing. It says this in verse 7. For you have been my help in the shadow of your wings. I will what? Oh, come on. Sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, here at Manor, what winds up happening is we use a, a software system called Planning Center to help us come up with an order of service. And one of the cool features is it keeps track of how often we play certain songs. And I, I just, I found this, I thought this was so fascinating. This is just fun facts. It's, it's kind of trivia about what kinds of songs we play in a manner. Are you ready for this? I, I, kind of, I kind of calculated out. I kind of asked it to give me a, a rundown of how often we play songs in the last two years. So this is from August 27th, 2020, uh, 2021, all the way to now. In the two years in this church that we have come to church every Sunday, we have played a total of 184 different songs pretty cool eh 90 of which are new to the last 2 years meaning that we might have sung them 4 or 5 years ago but 90 of them are new that we this year the average time that he, the average amount of time that one song gets repeated at this church is 1.5 uh, songs the average uh, t- the amount of songs that we sing in church every sunday is 3.5 songs a sunday service and I found this one very fascinating. The most repeated song in this church is. Do you want to take a guess? Oh, come on! No one wants to take a guess at it. Ten thousand reasons. No. Anyone else? Christ alone. Yes. <laughs> Christ alone is Manner's favorite song. Okay. We play that one so much. Out of every other song, that one gets repeated and chosen out the most in two years, and definitely the most in the past four years. It's so cool. You know what this tells me about manner. I, I hope you forgive me for this, and maybe you have a different opinion of this, but when I see 184 songs, and that we sing songs, we, we don't, we repeat a song 1.5 times. Uh, you know what that tells me about, our, about music and singing and manner is that we actually like to sing. Is that an amen? Amen. I was just thinking about this other day, and I, I, you might disagree with this, but my observation is for the size and kind of church that we are, we are a very, very musical church. Okay? I was just thinking about this the other day. I, I get to get, go together with other pastors, and I get together with other rural church pastors, and we talk about, you know, the best things about being a rural church pastor and some of the bad, worst things. And one of the worst, when I get together with them, one of, the, one of the common complaints about rural churches is that I wish we had more volunteers leading worship. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, well, I have one person leading worship 52 weeks out of the year. I can't get anyone else. And I'm like, is that a thing? And I was like, yeah, every rural church struggles with it. Manor has seven different people leading worship. And I would bet that there's more, but you're afraid to let us know because you know that if we know, we're going to ask you to lead worship. Okay. We also do special music. Have you ever tried to cancel special music during the service of this church? Ah, You don't do it. We love it. It's great. Okay. Uh, we do hymn sings. Do you know that? Um I was I was looking at the Three Hills and all the churches in the Three Hills, and I, I, there are other churches that do hymn sings, but I think that we gotta be in the top two or three churches that do it the most often. We love music. We love singing at church. We sing everywhere here. It's it's crazy. Okay. And if that's true, then I'm going to ask, like, what is the purpose and what is what is what is the goal of all the songs that we sing in church? So all the songs that we pick on Sunday morning, all the special music, all the VBS songs, any song that is sung in a small group or VBS or any of that, what is the purpose? Anything that we do where there's background music or we're playing a track, what's the purpose of music in church? And I've told you this before, I really believe that all music, all songs, the theology of it comes from Colossians 3.16, which says, let the word of christ let jesus's words dwell in you richly and so if the there is a win for the music if there's a goal for songs in this church it is to get the words of Jesus to get the bible to dwell in your soul richly that's all i care about is that we 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 get Jesus's words into our hearts and I, we can preach it we can write it we can sing it i but that's the goal. And you know, what, you know what that looks like for me personally? You know what the win is? The win is this. The win for me regarding any kind of song that gets played in special music or worship or Bible study or whatever you have here is that when we go home, the songs that we sung in church are sung around the dinner table, that are sung in the car when you're going on road trips, that the parents would sing these songs as you put your kids into bed. It just kind of happens organically, right? You get a song stuck in your head, and that song is something you learn in church, and it tells you about the Word of God. You know, um, we were meeting as... Uh, Christine did a great job with BVS. By the way, we want to thank Christine for all the work she did at BVS. We met... We met. Uh, she got all the volunteers together on a Tuesday, and she gave a thank you. And she was talking about. Uh, she just asked us what was good and bad about VBS and all that, and we were evaluating that. And you want to want to know what one of the positive things were about VBS that the parents said? Do you want to take a guess? About what it was? It was the songs. The, the songs that were sung here. Every day, where Paige was kind of like doing all the weird choreography. I I would come the next day and as Christine, as the parents were checking in the uh, the kids for BBS with Christine, I I overheard that some parents were saying that the kids were singing the songs in the car. They were singing them around the table. They were singing them while they were playing. That to me is the win. And I want to tell you that that is the purpose of songs in church. It's, it's, that. That's it. I don't care about anything else other than to get the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. Really. And you know why? It's a sad day because um, <clears throat> we don't sing in church anymore. Lifeway, uh, this came out in 2016, but it, there's, an, there's a more recent study. It says this. Uh, the, it's talking about why people don't sing in church anymore. That if you go to church, the trend is actually not that the worship leaders actually have a problem with the church actually singing people don't do it anymore right and they the, the the study goes on and it lists probably four reasons one of them is bad discipleship or bad theology the other one is is that we don't consider songs as a, a tool for discipleship but the third one that i found very fascinating was that the re, the number one reason why the church doesn't sing anymore you're not going to believe this, This sounds really weird, is the songs are too good. And what I mean by that is there's the skill level needed to play those songs is sung at a level that most people in church can't, can't sing with. The keys are too high. The, the complexity of the song musically can't be replicated. You need a really good skill, skill level to do it. And the, the songs are too wordy. So it's hard for someone to remember what they're, they're reading. So what winds up happening is, is people come to church, they stand to worship, and, and they can't sing the song because the key is not in the right key, it's too high, all that kind of thing. And what winds up happening is the church doesn't participate in the singing. It becomes more like a concert. And I think that's a sad day. You want to know why I think that's so sad? Because... When the Reformation happened, one of the key things among many was bringing worship back to the laity. Before the Reformation happened, when you would come to church, it would be just like it is now. You could not, you would come to church and it would be sung in a different language, in a different way and and preferably more like Latin, and you cannot, and so as a person who's at church, you cannot participate in it. And now I'm finding that we're in the same sort of situation culturally. And I just want to tell you is that singing, there's more to worship than singing. There really is. And I would love to do a series on worship at some point just so we can have a grounded biblical theology on worship. But can I just say that singing is a way that God chooses to get the word of God in your heart. And I think really the win is when we start singing the songs that we learn in church organically, around the campfires, around the dinner tables, all that kind of thing, in the car. And if you do that, I think it will help you get past that season of barrenness that you are in. David was in the wilderness. He had no audience nor did he seek one. God was the single object of his worship and it was to him his soul would cling and sing. To strengthen the relationship between David and himself as his Lord, David sang for joy. Rare but blessed are those who are disciples of David or, or who are relaxed enough in God's presence to sing. So friends, that's what I would say to you this morning is that if you are in a place where you are a dry and weary land, there is, there is life in the barren seasons. But it can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ, that you rely on him. And David does four things in his life to make sure that he relies on God. He, he, he recalls to mind his t- the scriptures that bring him into the presence of God. He prays, or sorry, what did I say? He, he sings for joy. <clears throat> he meditates on the word. And so my, 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 as we close today, I would just ask, like, if you are feeling dry, and you feel like your relationship with God is barren, don't wait on any external condition or environment for you to feel like you can have a thriving relationship with God. Take some time this week and pray to God differently. Meditate on his word. Praise him. And sing for joy. As you are determined, are you as determined as a young David not to have your thirst for God dependent on the environment? I encourage you to cultivate such a spontaneous relationship with God that you never again fall into the predictable mold of activity and empty religion because once you've tasted the real thing you'll never be satisfied with the phony plateaus of piety you will want to be in god's presence regardless of your location and season in life it's the most refreshing place to be on earth even though at that time you actually might find yourself in the wilderness let's pray father thank you for today that we know, God, that there will be seasons in our life where we do feel like our relationship with you is dry and barren. But in those moments, God, I pray that we would lean on you more and find our satisfaction and thirst in you. And the whole church said,